You're listening to a Corridor Business Journal podcast. For more than six decades, ACT has advanced its mission of helping people achieve education and workplace success. We exist to fight for fairness in education and create a world where everyone can discover and fulfill their potential. Education has power, a power that can change lives forever. It creates opportunities that lift up individuals and their families, and it sparks societal change that echoes through generations to come. From our grassroots, we have fought the good fight for equity in education, and we remain devoted to helping anyone who struggles to access that power. We are all in to create a world that values and encourages each individual's abilities and potential in a society that is fairer and more equitable. What's next for you? A new car? A new house? A vacation? At Alliant Energy, we're planning what's next for your energy by adding more renewable energy sources, embracing new technology, building stronger communities, and providing you with more options. We're not just powering homes and businesses. We're powering what's next for you. Learn more at AlliantEnergy.com slash powering what's next. The phrase people you can bank on, it kind of embodies our legacy. What I think that means is we care about our clients, we care about our community, and we care for each other. Having been in business for over 20 years and uh, explored all possibilities of financing and you know banking relationships, I have found that the people at Cedar Rapids Bank and Trust are people that you can really bank on. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Corridor Media Group's Diversity Straight Up, sponsored by ACT, Lion Energy, Cedar Rapids Bank and Trust. I'm your host, Sarika Bakta, president of Nikea Diversity Consulting. Hey, hey, Sarika. I am your host, Anthony Arrington, and, and we're about to have some fun today. This is going to be a great show, great show. We're about to get under the hood with diversity, equity, inclusion, and engagement. We've got a leader in the academia space today. Who do we got, Sarika? Yes, we're very excited, and thank you for asking, Anthony. We have with us Tina Gridiron. She is the Vice President for ACT Center for Equity and Learning, and in this role, she strives to build, enhance, and embed equity across the ACT enterprise by strengthening and supporting ACT's internal DEI efforts and building collaborations with external equity-focused leaders and organizations. Tina helps to support ACT's broader efforts to close equity gaps in opportunity and outcomes in the education and workforce arenas. Prior to joining ACT in 2019, Tina led grant initiatives as an officer and director for Lumina Foundation, and she has over 20 years of experience as a higher education professional with a deep, deep commitment to data-informed action. Ooh, I love to hear that. Equity-informed research and culturally responsive policy. Tina holds a Master of Arts in Higher Education Administration and a Master of Arts in Sociology, both from Stanford University and earned a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science from the University of California, Berkeley. She currently lives in Indianapolis, Indiana. Oh, and I love poli sci as well. <laughs> Tina, we're going to have a great time today. Welcome, welcome to Diversity Straight Up. We're always keeping it real. Yeah. Thank you, Sadika. Thank you so much, Anthony. It's great to
to be with you this morning. Absolutely. All that West Coast stuff. And she's in the, she's here in Indiana. All that West Coast <laughs> school, West Coast living. And she's here with us in Indiana. Well, well hey, before we, before we get started, uh, uh, we typically uh, like to talk about something that's on our mind. There's something on my mind. What's really been on my mind, not just today, but uh, quite a bit, is, is what is happening in our education space, uh, particularly around uh, the teaching of black history. Uh, and I'm particularly uh, concerned with what's happening in Florida uh, with Ron DeSantis and his agitation of the system. And, and literally, uh, these are his words, uh, saying that uh, some of these courses have no value. Uh, and as a black man, that deeply, deeply disturbs me. Um, I also know with House File 802 in my state of Iowa that was implemented a year and a half ago, um, that is literally uh, allowing or, uh, individuals in classrooms in K through 12 uh, to disrupt the teaching of African-American history if something makes them uncomfortable. So these, these changes are happening all over the country. Um, and I can't help but feel like there's an attack on <laughs> the true history of, of, of America, and we're, we're afraid to learn that uh, in some areas. And, and so that's been, that's been really disturbing to me, Sedeca. Well, uh, thank you so much for sharing, Anthony, in terms of what's on your mind and how um, uh, the impact is being felt uh, for you. I'm a history buff. For me, facts are facts in terms of what happened and being able to acknowledge it is important so that we can address it. I've always said that I wasn't alive back then. If I'm talking to you, most likely you weren't alive either. So it's not about the blaming shaming. It's just that if we can acknowledge it, then we can address it and we can be part of the systems and institutions now. So it's on me. Right. What kind of behavior do I want to do to impact change? Right. And so I, um, you know, when that did come out in terms of the recent um, proposed, you know, policy and legislation in terms of uh, not funding public uh, colleges and universities with DEI programs, as well as other initiatives, I am a public uh, institution girl, <laughs> K through 12 in two yes. different states as well as at the university level. And for me, I've always said, and my children are in the public school education system, and I've said that there is no real reflection of what is happening in the world than what you see in the classrooms in public academia, period. Because mm -hmm. that is what it is out there. And you are seeing the differences. So when you, you have, and they are the first state to propose getting rid of funding for DEI programs and public colleges and universities. To me, that is a very concerning um, on many levels. Yeah. I think that it also makes us, uh, there's a wake up call for um, DEI leaders. And I don't mean those that have a chief diversity officer titles. Anyone that believes in DEI principles is a DEI leader. Yeah. And what to me that signifies is that this rhetoric and this divisiveness in terms of um, DEI being aligned with a political agenda, this is what DEI leaders need to untangle that because it's not aligned to any particular political agenda. It should not, if it is. I was going to say it should not, DEI but it leaders, is. We need to do work in terms of being very inclusive with all political ideologies, because that's the diversity of thought, diversity of perspective, because that's what political yeah. diversity is. Pre-law, poli-sci major here, right? So I will <laughs> shout it out What do you think about this, so Tina? That means that 
if people are feeling a certain way, that means we're seeing it. I've always said, mm -hmm. however people are feeling, that is their true reality. So their decisions are being based on that. So that's a wake up call for me. Then how do I engage in conversations with everyone, all across all political ideologies, because that's where the barrier is right now. And I've yeah. always been very inclusive in my political um, inclusiveness, but this is a wake up call for us, yeah. those that are DEI leaders who believe in that philosophy. Yeah. People as you can see, it's been a lot in my mind yeah. there, right? So <laughs> there's a lot of actions that we all can take at the end here. Become heavy, Tina. You. What do you think? Well, it's, it's so funny because I believe that we are all part of the same tribe, the same community, as we unpack um, issues of academic freedom, issues of the opportunity to learn, um, things that are difficult, as well as things that we want to celebrate and support. I'm not going to get into political discussions, but what I do know is that education should open doors so that you are exposed to uh, difficult as well as affirming pieces of evidence and research and understandings and theologies and experiences. And what I fear is that if we narrow the kind of information that is available to students along their journey, we might repeat some of the mistakes of the past that have separated individuals, that have created negative experiences for populations. I'm an African-American woman. So anything that keeps my colleague to my right or my colleague to my left from understanding the African-American experience is something that gives me pause, that makes me concerned, that um, requires that I stand up and say, academic freedom is about making all information available, and then doing the difficult work of discerning and unpacking and understanding and getting clarity and gathering more. Anytime we decrease what is available, we also decrease the opportunity so that we, from learning from the past, so that we don't repeat the ills of the past. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So for me, I am um, uh, wrestling with the political discourse personally. But professionally, I'm about how do I keep as many doors open, as many opportunities open, as much information available so that the learning journey helps me make better choices, not yeah. just for me and mine, but for my the community that I'm part of, the democracy that I'm part of, the nation and the state that I am part of, so that we have global engagement that goes beyond just one perspective. Yeah. I am concerned always, but I'm also how uh, thinking through how do I act where do I put my energy? How do I make sure that the learner is getting every piece of information? And if it's not coming from one uh, political leader, I got, I got to figure out other ways to get the information out so that it never is stifled because we can't continue to dismiss what happened in our past. We have to acknowledge it. We have to understand it. We have to unpack it so that we do not repeat it. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. Thanks for joining in on us uh, with uh, what's on what's on our mind. So let's get into what's on our what's on our guest mind. Say, guess what's on your mind? I want to segue right into continuing that that conversation because you're right in the thick of academia in this in this space. So as you think about how you're how you're navigating these concerns as a leader, what are the conversations like in the boardrooms or in the in your space? What are the conversations like? about this topic? what What's happening in mm. your space? So as you read in my bio, I have uh, experience in the higher education sector. I worked for many colleges and universities in California before coming to Indianapolis. I spent 14 years in the philanthropic sector, 
mm-hmm. uh, working with foundations, private family foundations, corporate found- giving uh, organizations, as well as um, uh, endowed uh, uh, foundations. And in all of those settings, in the higher education setting, in the foundation setting, and now at ACT, my work has always explored how do I open doors for first-generation students of color and students from low-income backgrounds? What are the uh, barriers and challenges that those individuals face along their education journey? And how can I be a catalyst to opening the door and creating um, greater opportunities? In the spaces that I spend time in, the challenge is how, how do we collect data to show evidence of positive improvement for populations that have been historically underserved. So if we don't have data to demonstrate positive movement, then shame on us. We have to do work harder and we have to put our discipline. And then once we have the data, how do we package it and share it with others so that it moves people to behavior change, to um, action, so that we are seeing uh, more individuals succeed. As a woman of color, as a woman who has supported diversity, equity, inclusion in every job that I've had, I tell people all the time, I'm the one that raises her hand when they say, do you want to engage in a grant project that focuses on HBCUs? Yes. Do you want to engage in a project that connects the dots across multiple public institutions to address diversity, equity, inclusion for admissions processes? or for student persistence and completion efforts. I say, yes, I want to be engaged in the collaboration across institutions and organizations. I want to be engaged in data tracking so that we show evidence that this intervention is actually making a difference for first-generation students, students of color, students from low-income communities. Um, And I want to be a part of the, what is it, catalyst, the building process so that future leaders can carry the torch even farther and faster and higher and better than those of us who have been in it for a few years. I uh, am excited that it's been 30 years for me in this diversity, equity, inclusion space in lots of different ways. Unfortunately, the conversation is still about data tracking and then evidence of success and then engagement for action of others that are still perhaps on the margins and skeptical skeptical about what we might want to do. And um, there is more work to be done, but I'm excited about the young people that are also um, engaged in this work and uh, moving the dialogue forward, saying that complacency is not allowed, being comfortable is not allowed, and we have to do more now for the future. Well, uh, Tina, let's follow up on uh, the data-driven approach, which I'm a, I'm a big believer in data-driven, both qualitative and quantitative, because it's informing us and it allows us to be able to see where the connections are or where are the gaps to help build those connections. Um, what do you see for the future of um, the industry that um, ACT is in terms of like um, standardized testing? And I know that we're hearing out there that there are barriers, right? Because we're trying to minimize the barriers and try to remove it. What do you say to folks that say that standardized testing, especially looking at some colleges that are making it optional in the admissions process, that by removing it or by, you know, delaying it, this is a new normal in the spirit of creating, you know, access in the college admissions process. Mm -hmm. Would you like to share a little bit about the perspective from, you know, what they're saying and what your response would be for that? So uh, thank you for asking that question, because I actually get that question quite a bit. Um, We are in a season where many institutions are choosing test optional. 
what we know is that if an institution chooses test optional, that gives a student the opportunity to decide whether they want one to take um, an ACT test and then whether they want to share the information about how they did on the assessment. I believe that a student-driven approach means that students need to have options. So there is no pushback to the student having more options in their college admissions or college application process. Where I also wanna spend time is making sure that the institutions are transparent and consistent in how they address test optional. So what we find is that students of color, students from low-income backgrounds, students who are from a household where no one has graduated from college before, those populations oftentimes hear a lot of noise in the college admissions process. So if an institution is going test optional, make sure that they're also clear with the student about scholarships. Are those test optional or not? Um, if you're in the nursing program or the engineering program, is that test optional or not? What we find is that different institutions might put on the first page that they're test optional, but then on page three, four, or five have a few caveats that if you want a full ride scholarship, you must submit a test. Or if you want to go into the engineering program, you must submit a test. And that um, cloudy information creates noise for the student in the process. I'm a firm believer that any assessment should give a student and their parents and perhaps their teacher who is supportive of their learner journey should give them information about what they know and are able to do. Any assessment should be about a student and a family and a teacher gaining access to, I have mastery in this area of math. I have mastery in this area of writing. I have mastery and understanding in this area of uh, critical thinking, but I now need to build for further strengthening in these other areas. So an assessment, when it is used for further growth and further learning is used in the right way. When it's used to close doors or keep students out of opportunities, then we have a conversation that we need to have about how you are either presenting test optional clarity is important, or how you are using the score in opening doors or closing doors. The other piece that I often share with folks is um, assessment also brings an opportunity for clarity about how one school, one state, one community is faring compared to another school, another state, and another community. If there is no national moment to track and understand what students know and are able to do, then we might have um, Texas achieving one level of excellence in the material, Iowa achieving a different level of excellence in the material, and California achieving yet a third level of excellence, and no way to know whether there is room for growth or if those standards, those um, areas of expertise, those readiness benchmarks need to be improved. The other benefit for a national assessment like the ACT is that it allows us to gather information as a community, as a democracy, as a nation about where we want to move forward in investing in students to gain further and stronger mastery in competency, in content, in knowledge base. I'm a, a woman with three children. I'm gonna make sure that I understand where they have mastery. And anytime I spend time with other families, I tell them, you make the choice. We have fee waivers 
for individuals who can't afford the assessment so that you can still gain a, a sense of where your mastery is, but take it so that you can decide how you want to use it for the furthering of your own education journey. That's my, um, my um, what is it? That's my story and I'm sticking to it. Get the information so that you can make the decision about where and so, how you use it for the future. So how do you yeah, feel Tina, about thank those? Thank you so much for sharing because yeah. I know that there are some colleges that are not consistent. And I think I have a big issue with that, that if you say you're going to make, you know, um, standardized test results optional in the college admissions uh, testing, but then when it comes to scholarship, there's a caveat you needed. So it is very cloudy. So I agree with you that if you're going to stick with it, make sure it's consistent throughout the process. So it's not in the third, fourth, fifth, sixth on page. And I do love the whole student-centric, student-driven approach to owning their academic journey. And that's why I tell my children, I go, you're, you're a lifelong learner. And these are ways to be able to learn, but know where your strengths are but you're able to be in the driver's seat. So thank you so much for sharing your perspective on that. I appreciate it. So we've asked this, we've, I think we had, we may have had this conversation with uh, your CEO a couple of years ago, but what do you say to those who say that there's so much bias built into those testings, those standardized tests? And, and mm. because of the bias, that skews results and that skews mm. what somebody's true knowledge is and their true mastery is because th these questions are written by people who have bias going into the, the development of the of the, the assessment. How do you how do you respond to that? So I'm going to be uh, transparent and say that I'm a realist. And in the U.S., there isn't a system: the healthcare system, the justice system, the education system, the welfare system. There isn't a system that doesn't have an element of inequity that needs to be arrested, identified, and changed. Yes. So in the current education system. Let's say we have six inputs that a student has to put forward in the admissions process. They might have to bring forward their test scores, their GPA, their essays, their extracurricular activities, their leadership opportunities, and perhaps if you're at a few, the top 20 institutions, whether or not you're a legacy. So let's say there's six inputs that go into the admissions process. What we know is there is an element of inequity. Yes in all of those inputs. And what I learned from researchers from the University of California system who spent one year investigating what all of the inputs in there, the UC system that I'm a proud graduate of, all of the inputs that go into their admissions process, the faculty said that given the inequities that show up in every one of those admissions points, the one data point you don't wanna lose is the ACT or SAT test, mm -hmm. because it is the only one that's nationally benchmarked and not locally controlled. Mm -hmm. It's the only one that actual, actually has third-party individuals consistently reviewing. So do I believe that inequity exists out there in all of the systems within the U.S.? Yes. Do I believe that we have a lot of work to do to arrest the inequity that shows up in the education system in all of the admissions markers? Yes. But if you're going to get rid of the one that has the least inequity, the one input that actually has a more narrow, not from ACT standpoint, check the UC Regents Faculty Senate report, check all of the data that they provided in the over 100 pages of appendices. And they said, the faculty said, 
if you're going to get rid of something in order to improve equity, in order to improve the outcomes or the opportunity for first generation students of color and students from low income backgrounds, don't get rid of the nationally benchmark item. Make sure that you are addressing those locally driven items that have larger inequities built into them. Mm -hmm. Because, in fact, you may be increasing the inequity unintentionally. Everything's local, getting, isn't it? Yeah, Everything's so local. One of the things, there, there, I'm a firm believer that there's room to grow. I'm not yeah. going to tell you I'm Pollyanna and assessments are no different than any other area of education that needs to be uh, scrutinized with discipline and diligence and consistency. And let me tell you, my research team, we are uh, we have a research division that is unpacking every day. How is unconscious bias showing up in our assessments? What are some of the ways that we can arrest unconscious bias and make sure that our assessments are culturally relevant and culturally sensitive? How can we understand what um, uh, one sentence, how it is written from an asset framing versus a deficit framing? So let me tell you, I am a firm believer in assessment for information purposes and for growth in the education journey. I also know that without the disciplined work of investigating that we can um, sit back on our lower roles and think that everything is fine. Everything is not fine because we're not seeing income, race as being determinants. If we see that as a determinant of your outcomes, we've got room to grow. And mm -hmm. still in the education system, in the healthcare system, in the juvenile justice system, in the mental health system, we see that income and race are still playing too much of a determining factor yeah. to your long-term success. Tina, on that note, knowing that the social determinants, you know, of health, we see the compound effect that uh, crosses um everything from education to health to income. What do you think would be a good um, initiative to work on with um, other industry partners to really ensure that we're getting to the core root of it all here? I know it's a long ways for us to go, but I know that the pandemic really opened up uh, many um, eyes and ears for folks that inequities exist. And what that word yeah. exactly is, it's not the same as equality, it's different. Fair enough. It is different. It is different um, because what we know is that not everyone is starting at the same spot. And sometimes we need to give more to one individual or to equalize the starting spot so that we can all achieve our uh, personal and individual um, aspirations. Let me just share that there's an organization called Be Me, capital B, capital M, lowercase e, Be Me, that talks about asset framing. It's an organization led by a leader, his name is Trabian Shorters, who spends time talking about the narratives that we have constructed um, around different populations and whether those narratives are asset-based or deficit-based. Mm -hmm. When we constantly hear something negative about one group, even when the data tells us something different, our brain has a difficult time readjusting or reconnecting. 
when you ask me what would be an initiative that every organization, every leader could adopt, spend some time unpacking what is your narrative about a population. If you put out a report that has some negative challenges or has some growth areas that need to be addressed, do you put a picture of an African-American child looking sad or do you put a picture on the front cover of a European-American child that is smiling? That there are some subliminal ways that we create narratives and perspectives around certain populations that are always either deficit-based or always asset-based. The Trabian Shorters of the world, as a particular leader that has spent time in philanthropy, spent time in education, spent time in the tech sector, he says that if we don't arrest the narratives, if we're not disciplined and diligent in bringing forward an asset narrative for single mothers, an asset narrative for African-American men, an asset narrative for individuals in wheelchairs or individuals who um, have different um, uh, senses and are using different senses, senses stronger. If we don't start from an asset narrative, then we are inclined to build systems and approaches that feed on the deficits and then decrease the level of possibility. If there's anything that we can do. Yes, I want us to have strong data and I want us to have strong evidence of success. But what we know is that the brain sometimes doesn't accept even high quality data if it doesn't match with our narratives. And we, no matter what level of an organization you're in, no matter what level of leadership you're in, no matter what type of industry you're in, you can rethink, is this an asset discussion about how strong uh, Black men are as um, dads in the family and how um, effective uh, uh, single mothers are at raising their children or how um, effective uh, individuals from different perspectives are at, in, in innovation or in technology? Yes. Start from an asset perspective, and I believe that we'll be able to create new narratives that that lift all of us to the next level of success. Two things on oh, that. I love Anthony that. Anthony's got something to say. Yes. I do too. So two, after you, Anthony. <laughs> two things on that. Yes, because that 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 gets my antennas. Because we were talking about data. I was going to to challenge your approach to data and, and how we think about that. But you just you just basically. Um, uh, validated what I think, and that is we can have all the data in the world. I remember walking into this CEO's office one time, and the first thing he did was pull out a spreadsheet. And I said, I don't want to see your spreadsheet because all that, da that data is a byproduct of how people feel and the narrative they build. I I'm working with another organization. I I we, went uh, we, we found out about a poster in this, this, this educator's office. This is a K-12 education. There's a poster in his office, and the poster says, uh, get a good education, stay out of trouble, and don't have babies. And on the poster, there's a picture of a black woman. I'm sure the intent of this man was saying, be good, be a good student. But for 10 years, he doesn't know the racially motivated microaggression that's under that poster because no one's talked to him about that. They've only talked to him about data. They've only talked to him about the number of black kids he has in his class or the number of girls he has in his class. No one's talked about this underlying issues about how people feel. And so I really appreciated you saying that because I think that's where we get mixed up with people aren't data points and you have to marry that data to what's really happening qualitatively. And and I I'm, uh, is it Be Me, you said? A, it's a B capital B, capital, capital e? M, lowercase e. Be Me Community is the name of so, the not-for-profit. Yeah, so I want to uh, look Excuse me, up. I believe it's a for-profit entity. Excuse me, my apologies. They do consulting work around right. asset framing. And Trabian Shorters is the leader's name. And I believe in surrounding myself with leaders that cause me to step up my game. That none go. of us have arrived. And if 
you are the smartest one in your circle, shame on you. There you we go. need to spend time moving ourselves out of our comfort space where we are the sage on stage to an uncomfortable space where colleagues are saying, no, Tina, there's more for you to do. And let me tell you how your narrative around this issue or that yes. issue is actually undermining your potential for success. And yes. uh, lately he's been pulling my coattails. Good. I'm going to look that up. We, I love you here at Sage on the Stage. We call ourselves guide. We don't want to be Sage on the Stage. I'm a guide on the side. Sarah, gotcha. you had something. I know you're itching because this is a great conversation. It is. So, you know, the asset framing um, and, you know, when you're thinking about um, how that can shape the narrative, I know that asset framing can also be a disservice if you're looking at groups collectively as well. I'll give you an example here because this is something that, you know, I wrestled with a lot being a member of this community in terms of, you know, oh, all Asians are financially well off, they're academically high achievers. And when you're grouping diverse Asian communities all in one lump sump, the data, this is why I say I am a, I am a big believer in data, both qualitative and quantitative. So it's not just quantitative, but it's also qualitative. So give me much of that, you know, context that if you break down the data, you are going to see that it's very skewed because you have the Chinese and the Indian that are skewing the data. So what is that telling me that you have many, 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 many Asian communities that are being left to be slipped and, yes. you know, go through the cracks. And that is a disservice that even in asset framing, if you look at it from that collectively, you can start there, but you've got to really start not looking at groups together because you're going to do a disservice for them. So yeah. this is something that I've struggled and seen quite a bit. And um, we do need to start looking at it in a positive, but then start breaking down the data because you're going to see that not all of it is going to be applicable to this mm. particular group that... Mm -hmm to get a lump together. Well, yeah. what I hear um, in what you're sharing is the importance of disaggregated data and not lumping all Asians into one pot yes. and being disciplined to understand the history, the context, the reality, mm -hmm. the, um, the, the, the social opportunities or the barriers. Therefore, um, what we know is that the model minority myth is not a helpful um, label. It's not a helpful label because it keeps us from understanding the unique <coughs> experience of individuals from Thailand, individuals from the Philippines, individuals who are Hmong and who come from a different perspective. And mm -hmm. if we are about providing a strong um, foundation and support for all individuals, regardless of race and regardless of income and regardless of geographic birthplace. If we're about building an on-ramp for a uh, high achievement for all, then the disaggregation of data is important. The understanding of the nuance and the context for each individual um, population and group and community is important. And I have to get out of my comfort zone yes. to learn about the unique experiences and not lump all African-Americans in one pot, all Asians in one pot, and not all Europeans in one pot as well. So there is a growth, there's a give and take, there's a both and, there is um, my role as an ally, as well as an individual who's looking for allies in all different spaces. Yeah. Tina, I want to switch gears. You, you, oh, man, there's so much we could talk about all day, but I want to, I want to switch gears. I'm fired up today, are you? I know. <laughs> I want to talk about, I want to talk about Tina. Okay. Um. As, you're a black woman in corporate America at a very high-level position. You're actually in a in, in a C-suite where most people in your role really aren't. So um, 
you certainly have had your set of challenges, I'm sure, in your career, be it ACT or otherwise. Talk, talk to our audience about maybe one of the most difficult challenges you've had navigating as a black woman in corporate America when it comes to having to deal with your race and your gender and how you overcame mm. that. So um, it's important to just note, I'm a woman of faith. I believe that to whom much is given, much is required. And so um, service and um, showing up uh, with as much excellence as you can bring to the table has been ingrained in me from my preacher father, my preacher grandfather, my preacher uncles and uncles, aunts and Mm -hmm. uncles, actually women and men. Um, So when I think about where I've experienced the biggest challenge, to be fair, it has been mostly internalized oppression where I have felt that my voice didn't matter and that my perspective wasn't going to be valued. And so I kept it silent. Mm -hmm. In every instance where I muscled up the courage to actually speak the context of truth that I knew, it actually moved the conversation forward. But oftentimes I waited too long to muster up the strength for my voice, or I counted myself out even before the opportunity um, presented itself. So what is an example of that? I'm in a meeting. I'm the only African-American in the meeting. I might be the only woman in the meeting and I don't say anything. Where I sit, then that is a waste of space because if I have nothing to say, shame on me because our work requires that I speak up. When the men around me are speaking up, when individuals around me are speaking up, I need to muster the courage and not let my internal mind that says, well, well, maybe this is not the right time, or maybe this is uh, not the right statement, or maybe I haven't framed it, or maybe I don't have enough data. I had to grow as a personal, um, as a woman, as a leader, to open my mouth and share my perspective, and good things happened. I also need to share that I didn't get to this place in my career alone. Many people invested in me over time. Mm -hmm. I talked about Travian Shorters pulling my coattail and challenging me to explore asset framing. There have been other leaders who pulled my coattails or um, got me, uh, uh, got my attention to say, Tina, you have more to do and you are uh, allowing those narratives, those negative narratives, those internalized oppression elements in your own brain, keep you from the next level of your engagement. I have been um, told, I'm loyal to a fault and I'm not willing to just challenge truth, challenge, excuse me, challenge leadership. And I had to grow over time to be in that space. Um, Love and that. It, it, I believe that from my perspective, I know that there are systemic issues and there are systemic challenges and there are embedded racial and gender and socioeconomic inequities in every corner of the world that I live in. But I also know that there are some things that I can do internally to just um, break through the internal barriers that might keep me from speaking and challenging and allowing those around me to grow with me um, and be comfortable with the pushback. That was an area of growth for me. That comfortable with the pushback. And I I really, really appreciate that. You know, and I I think for our listeners, I hope that you're listening. It's about using that courage, right, to use your, your voice. I, I think I was in that space at one point, and, and, and I know that, and I imagine you've experienced this, that, that 
even using your voice will help people, it may, it may be a detriment to others. Others may not like what Tina has to say, but Tina has learned to say that mm-hmm. because if she doesn't, things are worse for Tina and the people around Tina. Mm-hmm. And I think that's mm-hmm. so important. So thank you for sharing that. And I hope our listeners got something out of that because I know for me that, that was something I had to learn. And because of that, I know that I have actually, uh, you know, I've been called names in the book. You know, I've been mm-hmm. called a, a Black Panther. I've been called a, you know, a radical. I've been called a, and I'm like, well, okay, if I'm making noise and people are paying attention, I must be impacting somebody. I'm okay with that. If I, mm-hmm. because I got to be able to sleep at night I and mean, I got to be able to use my voice where appropriate. And so thank you for that. So true. Well, I had one of our colleagues, a woman in, um, that is, uh, uh, not at the senior level of the organization. She came to me and she said, at a meeting, you said this meeting was supposed to leave, end at five o'clock. I have to get on the road because I'm a mom and I have to be at an event for my child. She said for the 10 years that I have been in this organization, I had never heard a woman put family commitments over the conversation of the workplace moving into her personal time. She said that voice, the fact that a senior leader was willing to say, it's time for me to go because I want to do great work at this job, but this job is not my life. It is one of many components of my life and my children need me now. She said it gave her the opportunity to set better boundaries in her work life. So sometimes our voice is in the gender space. It's in the race space. It's in the socioeconomic space. But just to be clear and to share, this is where I am. I had the flexibility. And the good news is Janet Godwin, as a CEO of ACT, is very supportive of family dynamics because um, she believes in the team that we have. So I also had a lot of cushion. Right. In that but regard. then you leverage that power to, to, to share one amongst your team mm-hmm. and then yep. look what Absolutely. it's done. That's awesome. And you're Absolutely. modeling the way, modeling the behavior. So they feel good about being able to take time to be able to spend with family. And, you know, and I've thrown out this whole notion of work-life balance, work-life yep. Integration, work life blended out the door. I go, anytime you're putting work right next to life, there's something inherently wrong. And I said, it's, it's this is my perspective, okay? Got it. You've always said that work is a subset of life. Mm-hmm. And it started, as soon as I started to really make that, you know, connection and recognizing it, my choices became easier for me. Yep. And uh, I understand that for some people, life is work, that's their value system. But I recognized yeah. what was wrong was that I was, you know, putting those two side by side. And so mm-hmm. knowing who you are, knowing your values allows you to be able to have a stronger voice to be able to overcome some of those internal challenges and barriers and being able to speak up. So, mm-hmm. Mina, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing with our listeners. And I know that we can, you know, it's probably a very short amount of time that we definitely could use more time with you to be able to share with our listeners. Um, but we do have another segment that I'd like for us to, you know, move on to. Yes. It's called, um, we'd love to be able to hear from our listeners. So what's on our listeners' mind? What's on our listeners' minds? So uh, listeners, uh, please continue to send us your comments and questions and suggestions as we love to hear from you. And um, they have a lot to say, Tina. Okay. And uh, we have questions from listeners. And um, uh, this next question is for you to be able to help out a listener. It is uh, Stacy from Little Rock. Her question is, even though DEI 
is part of our overarching strategic plan. As a senior leader, I am noticing our executive team struggling with balancing DEI initiatives with other business priorities and ensuring that DEI is integrated into all aspects of the organization's operations. Any best practices that you can share that I can help utilize to move this forward a little bit more? Great question, Stacy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, great question, Stacy. And I believe that when we ask the question at every meeting, does this decision impact all individuals in the same way? If it does, great. If it doesn't, let's figure out the nuances of how we might need to adjust. Have you, so from ACT's vantage point, I can only talk from what I know. If we are about to release a new tool, have we spent time with Spanish speakers with that tool to see if they are understanding and experiencing the tool in the same way that our English language speakers are experiencing it? We have to go the extra mile in the testing phase rather than waiting until after the deployment stage and then um, wondering why we're not seeing the same outcomes. If we are disciplined in the design phase, what the phrase that we have been using at ACT for the last couple of years is called equity by design. If we have spent time addressing how equity is built into the design because we've over-tested with populations that traditionally are underserved. We've done the analysis to understand whether we are embedding bias or embedding a deficit framework in how we have designed it. If we're asking those tough questions at the beginning stages, then we know that we have a stronger leg to stand on at the time of deployment. What we know is serving all students well is a good bottom line business strategy. Given the demographics of the U.S. population and the growth of people of color and people from different backgrounds coming into the U.S. and being part of the U.S. Um, for, for generations, if we serve all well, then you are going to see some bottom line growth in terms of your financial business uh, results. It is not an either or. It's a both and. And when you fail to design for the nuances and the contextual experiences and the challenges facing some of your fastest growing populations, shame on you. And sometimes it is one individual in each meeting to ask the question, how is this going to serve our first generation or our low income populations or our communities of color? Do we have evidence to show that we've tested it well and that it is going to achieve the outcomes that we say are available to all. Stacy, I would say the opportunity to ask the question. When you ask the question, it gives folks the opportunity to say yes or no whether they've done it. But by asking the question, did we test this with all of the populations that we say we want to serve? Do we know what the demographic breakdown is of the U.S. population and that we know that this resource is going to serve them all well? Ask the question because it never hurts. You might get a no, and if you get a no, then you ask the next question, why? And then when you get that, you say, well, then how do we improve? Part of it is just bringing it into the conversation consistently um, so that individuals know they can't move quickly on the financial front without checking on the impact and asset-based upfront. 
That's there you Stacey. go, Stacy. You heard it from Tina. Tina, thank you so much uh, for sharing uh, that uh, insight. And I love the equity by design. I remember one time I was speaking to CEO of a national company, and he's like, Sarika, DEI is one aspect on a laundry list of things that I need to get through with my executive team that we meet only two weeks, you know, two times a month or something. And I said, Well, I think that's where the maybe the barrier is, the challenges, is that you're looking at DEI as in a silo where you should be looking at every agenda item through the DEI lens. And when you have that mindset and you're able to shift the perspective, not only yourself, but your whole entire executive team, as well as managers, anyone that's leading yeah. meetings and just having that as normal, like, okay, everything needs to be looked through a DEI lens. Then you know that it's integrated through all of your business priorities. And so I love how you have coined it over there at ACT equity by design. So Thank you. And thank you, Stacy, for asking a great question there. Yes. yes. Keep your questions coming in. We appreciate that, Stacy. And then it was an example of using your voice, asking the questions. So thank you. Love it. Well, we're going to get on to our last segment. This was our surprise segment that we always have for our guests. And uh, we have this <laughs> icebreaker we, we call uh, the diversity icebreaker. And it's with this diversity thumb ball. So for our audience, if you can't see, we have this soccer shaped ball. And it has all kinds of icebreaker questions related to diversity on it. So if we were in the room with you, Tina, we would throw this to you and you would catch it. And wherever your thumb lands, left or right, Sarah says it has to be one thumb. I say pick a thumb. Well, no, you catch it with both your thumbs together right. so you land on yeah. one. So you don't have to, like, divvy between yeah. two questions where people pick the easiest one. So we it's not my rules. rules. I didn't create them, but You know how when you go to rules. somebody's house and you play Scrabble <laughs> and then you go to somebody else's house and they got an extra rule in Scrabble? That's how we do it. Yes. <laughs> Or an extra rule in spades. Yeah, yes, spades. Yeah, you got extra rules. Yeah, you bid got with. Yeah. You're changing the rules. Yeah. Yes, house rules. <laughs> I got you. So I'm going to throw the ball in the air, and I will catch it for you, Tina. Okay. For our okay. audience, I'm going to catch it for Tina, and I will pick a question, and you'll just answer it. All right? Okay. And then we'll go around, Sounds and Sarah good. and I will play the game with you. All right. Well, that was landed on the logo. <laughs> All right. The question is, what were your parents' attitudes towards LGBTQ communities? So I was born in 1970. My dad was born in 1946. And I would say, um, as a preacher's daughter, we had, growing up, a very narrow understanding of LGBTQ issues and the community. It was narrow. And now, after some uh, many, many years of work, I would say that we are at a different place. Um, what happened for my parents was they had to learn and grow as one of their children came out and shared the journey that they were on. And it allowed our entire family to grow and mature over time. My parents are still alive, and we are excited because um, my children now have a freedom to express in a way that was not available to me and my siblings when we were younger. And I'm excited about how my parents are part of the supportive journey that even my children are on now. It has been a growth process that was hard at times, difficult at times but also full of celebration and joy and growth and just a, a sense of what is possible 
growth, yeah. seeking to understand and growth. And that's, I love that you shared that. Again, this is a random question. So it was beautifully, it was meant for that thumb to land on that question yes. for you. And we appreciate yes. that. Um, I can remember, sharing. you know, having a, I remember growing up and having an LGBTQ choir director. That was the first choir director in our church. And I remember vividly kind of how it impacted the the church community at first. And it, it, it took some time, but uh, I didn't know any, I didn't know any different, but I, it growing, looking back, I remember it. So thanks for sharing that. All right, Setica, do you have a do you have a soccer ball, or should I throw for you as well? Oh, go ahead and All do right. the thumb ball. Mine's over there. Okay. I'm, uh, you know, at least I know I can't miss your ball this time. All right, here we go. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you should see us in the studio, Tina. I don't. I'm not kidding. We're sitting right there, and here I'm like, you know, my short arms trying to like get it, get it, ball right, my go. stool. <laughs> Got it. All right. Your question is. What early messages did you receive about your identity? Oh, I think I shared this one, so I'm going to share another one. And if I did share this, let me know. I know I've used it in other you know, training sessions too, but I remember my mom wore her sari. So born in India, we came to America. I was 19 months old. And my mom, for the longest time, always wore the sari, which is the traditional Indian attire, which is about like five, six, 20-foot fabric that you wrap around for those listeners that may not know what the sari is. She also always had a bindi on her forehead, which, you know, symbolizes marriage or is part of the fashion for younger, you know, individuals to put on many times it could be the stick on ones or sometimes it's the dye ones um that's like the dye colored ones and um i remember being um embarrassed anytime especially when we moved to quad cities on the on the illinois side of the river we were one of we were actually one of the first indian families i think my parents said we were like the second or third family in the quad cities that were indian families so as you can see this is way before technology so exposure is what it came down to not many people had seen people wearing an indian sari or wearing the bindi I was always so embarrassed um, and I always, you know, did not like people staring at us. And I think that's where it made me realize that I was different because people stared at us quite a bit. Not only did it because my mom wore the sari and she would wear the bindi, but she also spoke Gujarati because she did not know how to speak English. We taught her how to speak English. Um, and we also smelled a lot like Indian food because we would cook Indian food did not recognize or realize that that smell was on us as we were walking out the door because that is just a smell that we are used to. I think just people staring at us a lot yeah. just made me realize that I was just different and I did not like being stared at. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I know we've, we've talked about that before and, and um, we all have those experiences and uh, thank you for sharing that, Sarika. Yeah, you're welcome. So let me throw the ball for myself. I'm going to hit myself in the head if anybody's seen that. <laughs> All right. We see you. <laughs> in what ways can we support people with physical disabilities? That is a good question and actually um, one that even us in this space is learning. I'll tell a quick story that I just learned last week myself. I was, I'm a board member for an organization, and I was on a call, and we were having – I'm on the disability committee. Uh, for those that don't know, I'm a, I'm a bilateral amputee. I've had, I'm a below-knee amputee. I've been an amputee for 30-plus years. Uh, so I, I, I have a personal and a professional uh, advocacy for people with disabilities. But I'm in this meeting, 
and we're having a conversation about um, uh, hearing devices. Um, and I made the comment, I said, so um, for, for people who are hard of hearing, we want to make sure A, B, C. I said, for people who are hard of hearing. And somebody in that room uh, in the next conversation said, you know, Anthony, uh, you know, appreciate the work you're doing. You know, as we think about language and we think about uh, learning and growing, I just wanted you to know um, that people in the in the community that can't hear, they don't really say hard of hearing. That's typically been uh, used as an offensive term. They like to use the word deaf. So just wanted to share that. And there was about 10 people on the call. Now, the easy thing for Anthony did to do, and this is why we all have to learn and grow, right, was to be defensive. But here I am, a, I'm in this space as a, as a practitioner, and I'm learning every day. And I said, thank you. Thank you for sharing that with me. I didn't know that. That's great to know. That's something I learned. And that doesn't mean I won't make that mistake again. But what I would say to people, how do you support people with disabilities? Be willing to learn and be willing to understand that, that they, are, they are different, but we are the same. It's how do we accommodate? How do we create the equity, right? And how do we be willing to learn? What we don't know, we don't know. And that's okay. Like I screwed up. And I'm t totally okay with that. And I'll do it again, and I'll be totally okay again. Um, so be humble um, and, and be willing to be supportive and be willing to learn. So, Thank you for sharing, Anthony. Yeah. Thank you. And I think this is a, the, the key lesson for all is we're lifelong learners. Yeah. We're humans. We make mistakes too, right? Absolutely. The key is wanting to continue to learn and to grow together. Yeah. So. Thank you. Thank you. We're at our end here, Tina. I do not know where the time flew by. Uh, thank you for your time. Any uh, last thoughts or recommendations or advice that you can give to our listeners who are growing and learning on their own diversity, equity, inclusion, and engagement journey that you would like to share? Any key advice to them? Oh, I always go back to a quote by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that stands out for me. If you can't fly, then run. If you can't run, then walk. And if you can't walk, then crawl. But whatever you do, keep moving forward. And I thank you for this conversation that allows us to keep moving Thank forward. you. I heard a fourth movement in a Martin Luther King meeting last month, and it was, if you can't, if you can't crawl, scoot. <laughs> that's not in his original quote but i like it I know <laughs> you know ministers like to improvise you come yeah, from a exactly. minister's family you know that so that was an improv improvisation from a minister it was great thanks for having me thank it's you it's been a delight thank you so thank much. you so much appreciate your time and your insights and i know that our listeners are going to love it as well so thank you again tina yeah. And a shout out again to our sponsors, ACT, Alliant Energy, and Cedar Rapids Bank and Trust. The show is produced by LAS Media Group. A special thanks to our listeners, as without you, we wouldn't be here. So please continue to help us grow subscriber base by sharing our show with others, liking, commenting, etc. Love this episode of Diversity Straight Up? Then head over to the most popular podcast and audio platforms to subscribe, rate, and review us. We'd love to hear from you. Hit us up and send your questions, comments, and suggestions to info at diversitystraightup.com. Remember, wherever you live, work, and play, our backyards are increasingly global. And as we say on our show, diversity straight up. Keeping it real.